Hello, welcome to Overburden, the podcast for postal workers. I'm Kevin Hitchings. And I'm Brandy Hughes. Today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, your rights to unionize in Canada and where that started and what it means. Um, yeah, and also how how you that right continues now. Um, Despite or, the best efforts of some conservatives. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of one of those things that feels like it's always under attack, despite the fact that it's uh, protected on so many levels. Right, and I don't think they're attacking the right to unionize so much anymore. It's just trying to chip away labor rights from the sides as much as possible, so unionizing means less. Yes. Uh, But this goes back all the way to John A. Macdonald. In uh, 1872, he passed the Trade Union Act, giving us the right to unionize. Back in April of 72, Unionized printers went on strike uh, because they wanted a nine-hour workday reduced from their normal 12-hour workday. And this was before weekends. Wouldn't be surprised this was six or seven days a week they were working these 12-hour days. So they went on strike. 24 of them were arrested because apparently striking was criminal conspiracy. Uh, (laughs) I'm not sure what they were conspiring to do, but uh, that's what they were charged with. So uh, a liberal... NP George Brown uh, led 10,000 supporters to march on Queen's Park uh, where they basically convinced John A that it was politically advantageous to write a bill giving people the right to unionize legally, uh, which he did do uh, for votes mostly (laughs) um, because at almost the same time he passed another bill making it illegal to picket. So you could stop working but you couldn't let anyone know he stopped working essentially. I kind of want to know what specifically was in the anti-picketing bill. Yeah, I didn't see a lot on that. I can kind of see that because we talked last episode about how some strikes were kind of violent and stuff. So it might have been a way just to give workers the rights, but discouraged gatherings that could cause violence, perhaps. I don't know. But uh, to me, it, it looks like there's pretty wide agreement that he passed the um, Trade Union Act for votes. So it's likely he was just trying to do the same thing that uh, Peter McKay or Jason Kenney both failed to do lately and play both sides of the fence. Already picking on conservatives right out the gate here. <laughs> yeah, that's so unusual for you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, for us in general. <laughs> I, I find that funny that, uh, you know, they give them give them some rights, but then it seems like, go figure... Um, Politicians don't like anything that encourages an angry mob, right? So Well, I don't think you ever want to encourage an angry mob. <laughs> Unless you're Trump and you're trying to incite a riot on White House. Well, maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just <laughs> hit the right wing one more time. <laughs> <laughs> Not that we recommend that course of action. So um so the these rights to be uh to be part of a union and, and the rights that the right to participate in union activities, I guess, more so than, than uh, just being a member, um, is also enshrined in the Canada Labor Code. Um, so it's under Section 94. And at this point, it's still just legislated. It's not constitutionally protected yet. The, the thing that I think is most at risk uh, currently for many unions is that is that the employer is not allowed to interfere with with the formation of a union or with the administration or uh, functions of the union. Um, they're not supposed to interfere with uh, people's access to their union representatives. They're not supposed to interfere with um, 
uh, people having conversations or or uh, organizing. I mean, they they might have uh, they might be able to limit where you can do that, but but they can't stop you. Uh, I think one thing that concerns me, I think a lot working at Canada Post, is that the employer is also not supposed to, uh, and this is also protected in our like in our collective agreements. The employer is not supposed to intimidate or uh, discipline or harass people for being involved in the union or for representing others. Although they have at the West Depot lately, which is completely <laughs> illegal. Yeah. Um, they well, I think they do in a lot of places. They do little little microaggressions, but lately it seems like yeah, some of them are are macroaggressions. Yeah, uh, one of the things here, if you note, it said the employer can't, but that doesn't mean the government can't, and that's where we're seeing a lot of these laws that kind of interfere with labor. Uh, the one in Ontario, for example, where they slapped a one percent wage limit that you could bargain in the public sector. So just basically took away the labor rights. The corporation isn't doing that. The government is. And uh, in that case, they even did it retroactively. They gave the workers a bunch of stuff based on a... Two, or took away a bunch of stuff from the workers based on a 2% wage increase and then legislated that, oh, it can't be more than one and made it retroactive. That's just awful. Yeah. So, yeah, there's ways around this that politicians are always looking for. Um, I shouldn't say the politicians, some politicians. Okay, and... Um... The employer also is not supposed to um, is not supposed to in any way uh, harm people for for participating in union activities or or cause them any financial hardship and so we often see that in our collective agreements in that if you're uh, taking time to do a grievance investigation or to speak with a member you will often get part of your workday covered um, so that you're not losing any losing any pay or losing any time. Uh, because of your activities. Which you're also refusing to do lately at the West Depot. So we're just piling yeah. up grievances. <laughs> it's true. And, and I, I guess to me, I find that it's sad that we have to file grievances on that or, or make complaints about that because these things should be given. Yeah, it's in the CA and in the Labor Code. So there's no excuse for not doing it. The worst political attack in recent memory is probably Bill 85 from Saskatchewan. This is the Brad Wall government. This is what we mentioned before. I think they called it the... Essentials Workers Act, Essential Workers Act, or something like that, and to really limit people's involvement in the union, and it was of course struck down by the Supreme Court. It was two hundred pages of intentionally vague language, um, and basically it was really, really vaguely worded, and the employer was the one that was allowed to interpret things. Mm-hmm. So if there was any disagreement, you're allowed to disagree. You had to consult, but then if you couldn't decide on something, the employer decided. So it just basically gave the employer a veto on everything. Um, it said anyone's in a supervisory position cannot be in the bargaining unit. They could still technically be members of the union, but they wouldn't really be protected by the CA. They wouldn't be able to bargain their wages. Um, so basically took away their right to unionize. And same thing as what they called a confidential employee. And a confidential employee was anybody who had any work at all on policy, budgets, or business planning. They took this to the extent where if you were a janitor and you said, hey, what kind of toilet paper can I buy? And they said, well, you pick yourself. You just made a budgetary or policy decision because you chose. Mm. And it was seriously to that level. And there was really very few employees that would not have fit into one of these budget or one of these categories if you stretched. And uh, even if you didn't stretch, 
You just had to make something up, and if there was disagreement, the employer won. Yay. Uh, and it was really just an attempt. The whole thing was just an attempt to avoid bargaining altogether. There was no employees in the union didn't have to bargain. One of the things that was really blatant in the act was that it said the unions could not strike until they completed mandatory government conciliation. So basically you had to go through a government arbitrator and or a mediator before you could strike. Okay. But the only way to enter into that process with the government or with the government is if the employer and only the employer wrote a letter to the government requesting it. So basically you were not allowed to strike unless the employer asked the government to allow you to strike. And they were only allowed to even do that if the employer could show that all bargaining had stalled. So basically, if bargaining never starts, or if they pretend to talk to you once a year, it hasn't stalled yet, so they don't have to write that letter to the government, therefore you're not allowed to strike because the, the employer hadn't started that process and the union was not allowed to start it. So that's pretty pretty blatant. <laughs> how, how would that apply to lockouts? Or it wouldn't? It wouldn't. There you go. There was nothing in here to protect employees from being locked out. So, and and I find it interesting that okay, so these are man or sorry, essential workers. Yeah, essential to the company. They tried. They called the Essential Workers oh. Act so to make people think that it was protect you know police services and hospitals from shutting down, but it was essential to the business. And really, what it was was just a way to limit everybody. And when they say that supervisors can be in the bargaining unit, and Everybody who is confidential couldn't be in the bargaining unit. That means they couldn't unionize, but they had to be in different bargaining units. So technically, you could have an employee or a company with 50 employees and have 50 different bargaining units, making it virtually impossible. And firms by themselves, it's no longer really a union. So hey, but everybody's president. Yeah, they worded things <laughs> like this to try and get around the laws. But uh, yeah, it was obvious and blatant. And again, intentionally vaguely worded just to cause chaos. But it basically allowed the employer to create whatever groups they wanted and then ignore those groups as long as they wanted. I, see, I was thinking when you said essential that you meant like like the doctors and the nurses and the police uh, people. And I was thinking, wouldn't the employer kind of be the municipalities anyway? So the government, you know, it just felt like it was like, well... We get to we get to decide everything, and and you get to write a letter to us to get us to agree to stuff. But like all the powers on one side, there it's ridiculous, and and it also negates that. Uh, I cannot cannot remember the name of that principle that says like whoever wrote the whoever wrote the contract it errs on the side of the other person. Right. Yeah, that that's what they wanted to imply was it was just to protect the public, but it was really just to protect businesses. That seems to be, um, it seems to be standard for our government here, at least lately, that everything's about, uh, kind of a short-sighted view of business, I find, because it's all about making money this year, you know, and, and having good-looking books. Well, that's the problem with selling off, or not. So, sorry. Okay, go ahead. That's the problem with selling off assets. Um. Like Crown Corporation. Yeah, again, the. SAS party here is always wanting to, the SAS party here tried to sell off SASTEL, the provincial phone company a few years ago. And uh, they were proven to have done it illegally too. They were bargaining to do it before they were even in government. Uh, what they want to do is sell off all the profitable parts because we, they are only allowed to sell 49%. So they want to sell off the profitable 49% because 
claim massive losses so the company would you know the public would want to sell the other part mm -hmm. but really what you're doing there is selling off your income yeah you know so yeah you make money today oh yeah this year looks fabulous you made excellent profits but you don't have that income next year right and that's kind <laughs> of the that's what really gets me about the the right wing and this privatization stuff plus again we've talked about this many times how money how governments make money and the people make money when the money stays in the system as long as it moves the government mm -hmm. makes money as soon as you have a private corporation in there it's no longer moving it's going to going into shareholders accounts outside the province outside the country and it's gone right right uh and if some millionaire is hoarding it because that's what private corporations are there for to make money not to serve the, the public so when the money's gone it's gone and there goes all your tax revenue and uh it's not just the money that the crowns make it's all that rotating money that really really boosts the economy and when you're selling off a crown uh or privatizing anything really you're selling off all that money not just the profit the money makes it's the money recycling through the economy over and over again that's how uh daycare in quebec they're saying every dollar they put into daycare for the first little bit at least was getting them a dollar 75 back with all those new people entering the workforce it was cycling all this new money through the economy and actually making the government money. Well, and then all those people who now have income who didn't before, they can spend money on other things, which is in turn stimulating the economy. And I think, I think that short-sighted view of business, it, it also, you see it in, in like this legislation you were discussing and how uh, moves like that, they're going to reduce the jobs uh, here they're going to reduce the quality jobs here and if you don't have the unions to to fight for keeping those jobs being decent and well-paying then um that that's going to have another effect on on your local economy because you won't have those people staying here living here raising their families here spending their paychecks here um because the quality of life just isn't there and there's not enough of those jobs to keep them that's the thing. They're always talking about how the Saskatchewan economy is amazing, but it's they they really cherry pick their numbers. People mm -hmm. can't afford to leave here. They're leaving in droves, and our lower population is putting our per capita money up a little bit, kind of thing. If that makes sense. So, and if you, all you need to do is drive down any business area in Saskatoon at least and see all the closed doors. That was pre-pandemic, because um, all the money is going to the to the corporations that may or may not be in the province and. The money is leaving the province, and therefore the people are leaving the province. Yeah, well, people won't stay where there's no work. That's that's. Uh, I don't understand how they they say they're the masters of the economy while taking money out of the working class, because again, it hurts. It helps the the donors to the parties, but it doesn't help the economy at all. Because when you take money out of the economy, they're really hurting it. And this is all uh, Reaganomics, where if you feed money to the top, it's supposed to trickle back down. It's like, no, you mm -hmm. feed it to the top, it stays there. They don't spend it, they hoard it, they invest it, it's gone. And uh, it would be better at least, or okay, if they at least invested it in your province or in your region. But everything is a world economy now, and that's just not going to happen. Well, and I think you've just hit on one of the, the problems with the way, the way that our, our business 
models work is that there's no trickle down it's not a waterfall yeah. it's more of a space elevator it goes up to the top no matter what we do because that's the way the system's been designed yeah it was an interesting idea 40 years ago but it was proven to have failed then and people are just still doubling down on it hmm. and it's disastrous really but uh they keep talking how the economy is great because they look at the stock market well stock market is the rich people <laughs> you know things like this these indicators that don't really relate to the working class uh, you very rarely hear them talking about the mean income of the average family. They're always talking about these big numbers and national numbers that don't affect us. Have we gotten way off topic? We've gotten massively off topic, and Brand's going to bring us back. <laughs> I just realized, weren't we supposed to be talking about our right to union representation? Yep. <laughs> just to go back and wrap up on the Bill 85 from Saskatchewan. Um, that was struck down in a 5-2 decision. Uh Saskatchewan said that this was going to be a change in the workforce of seismic proportions. So no change was going to be a change of seismic proportions, whereas putting in this incredibly repressive law would have been fine. So kind of backwards there. Uh, but yeah, they were saying that this would give too much power to the unions by not changing the power the unions had. So as far as the Constitution goes, it wasn't until January 2015 where the right to unionize actually became part of the Constitution or recognized under the Constitution. Uh, this is when the RCMP had a case on their right to organize. Um, it was argued they didn't need to because they had a police association, but the head of the RCMP commissioner, whatever they're called, who was an employee of the government to work directly for the government, was also the person in charge of bargaining for the officers uh, under them. So an obvious conflict of interest when the person hired by the government who's in charge of the budget, in charge of the corporation. This is basically like saying the CEO is there to represent the employees of the company. So a huge conflict of interest. I'm just imagining the negotiations where they talk to themselves. Yeah, and that was the problem. <laughs> is, uh, yeah, and they were the mediator and everything if ever came to a problem where the two sides couldn't agree. There's one guy with a huge conflict of interest. I think it was always a guy at that point. We have a, a female commissioner now. But... Uh, and they were basically told that because they already have an association, they don't need to formally unionize or can't. And they went to court and won that. This is basically where they decided that it, the right to unionize was part of the Constitution. In the ruling, they said, We conclude the guarantee of freedom of association protects a meaningful process of collective bargaining that provides employees with a degree of choice and independence sufficient to enable them to determine and pursue their collective interests. So not just that they were allowed to unionize, but that it had to be basically uh, a meaningful way it couldn't just be a token union uh laws like Saskatchewan's couldn't be put in there just to disrupt things they had to be given the uh, freedom to sufficiently enable them to determine and pursue their collective interests so this is where it, you know it wasn't formally written into the constitution but it was recognized under the constitution and uh this is this was a huge huge win because if we had lost this or that's especially that Saskatchewan case that would have had ripple effects uh, across Canada, maybe further. That would have been just devastating. Well, yeah, because the, what's what's reflected in that uh, right to pursue common interest is the right to bargain as a group and the right to, if necessary, withdraw services as a bargaining tactic. Right. Right. It said uh, the opportunity to influence the establishment of workplace rules and thereby gain some control over a major aspect of their lives, namely their work. Put simply, its purpose is to preserve collective 
employee autonomy against the superior power of management and to maintain equilibrium between the parties. So it recognizes kind of your work-life balance here too. And just saying kind of roundabout ways that just because an employer has control over you, they're not allowed to dominate your life and, and just dictate terms to you. And you have some control, um, partly through wages so that you can go out and spend those outside of work, just that you have the freedom to gain from your work essentially and not just be the slave to uh, to an employer. Hmm. Someone needs to explain that to the Canada Post management that they can't just dictate. <laughs> this, there was a question in this case as to whether the, their rights, the rights of the union had been uh, infringed upon and, and their right to collective bargaining. And so they, they actually defined uh, a means to determine whether those rights had been disrupted and so I'm just going to read it here. The courts assess whether the measure disrupts the balance of power between the employees and the employer necessary to ensure the meaningful pursuit of workplace goals so as to substantially interfere with meaningful collective bargaining. Such disruption can occur in many ways, restriction on the subjects that may be discussed, the imposition of arbitrary outcomes, banning recourse to collective action without countervailing protection, making employee workplace goals impossible to achieve, or establishing a process which employees cannot effectively control or influence. Substantial interference with collective bargaining negates the employee's right to meaningful freedom of association by rendering their collective efforts pointless, which encourages the view that future associational activity would be similarly futile. So I think that that blurb really kind of captures what what is at stake here? Like, if you don't, if you don't have the opportunity to uh, to take collective action, to use those actions to get to make meaningful gains for yourselves and your coworkers, then it's really hard to get future and potential union members to get involved, to get active, and to to be willing to fight, to make, be willing to make any sacrifices in order for future gains. Right. Especially for others, not just for themselves. That was a 5-2 decision by the Supreme Court uh, and, and applied only to public sector workers in this one. Saskatchewan government uh, strongly disagreed with the ruling, but they were in the habit of just automatically just automatically legislating people back to work at the time. Um, on average, every two years, they were ordering someone back to work pretty much before bargaining started. And this is at a time when when government uh, agencies didn't even bother to bargain so much because they knew they were going to get legislated back. Oh, yeah. So these were the only ones that got really desperate enough to try it. And then they were legislated back right away. So it was just a uh, ritual abuse of power that uh, Saskatchewan government had at the time under Brad Wall just to, you know, uh, not bargain, not bargain like Canada Post does and then immediately legislate back like Canada Post tries to get the government to do. Saskatchewan government complained about this afterwards, saying it was a shift of seismic proportions to allow workers to strike. Um, even though most places had this power, they just, you know, it was, it was a huge shift for them because they would actually have to bargain in good faith. But I don't see services shutting down since. This is now seven years old. I don't see the province in, in huge disarray since then. Well, you were talking about them... Uh, just forcing people back to work without uh, any real negotiation. And I think we're still here in Saskatchewan seeing the um, the effects of that when you look at the shortage of um, healthcare personnel, especially uh, nurses. 
they're like they were at the time trying to negotiate and and negotiate for things like actual days off or <laughs> limits to limits to how overworked they were what seemed to oh, seems always to be the issue and you know these are not easy jobs these are stressful jobs these are these especially now in the pandemic but even before like these are the people who are saving people's lives they are the first people that people see and the last people that people see and there's a whole lot of emotional and uh physical toll toll that it takes on on you and to not to not even give them the opportunity to fight for for protections that would allow them to just be whole and healthy people while they continue to do these jobs like it's just it's it's so disheartening to think that that's how you treat people who are who are saving your lives or saving your loved ones after the supreme court struck down the law in 2015 uh joel buckin who's a law professor in british columbia wrote a statement here uh since the 1980s organized labor has lost ground as a result of unsympathetic government policies and laws not to mention economic changes such as globalization the court recognizes that as workers' freedom of association is eroded by economic shifts and hostile governments, the judiciary becomes more essential for protecting this fundamental right. It's a classic case. Government cannot be relied upon to respect constitutional rights and freedoms, so the court steps in. Basically, what he's saying is the courts have to protect union because the governments have gotten into the habits of abusing the unions and the workers in general. Uh, and he wasn't so much supporting the the court's decision more in this piece he was saying how the government has kind of abused the workers into a place where the courts don't have a choice if the governments would just respect workers introduce fair legislation that's not meant to hose everyone over and benefit the rich and actually take care of their people then the courts may have decided differently because they wouldn't have needed to protect some protect the workers so strongly in this case um because a lot of people really argued that that essential workers should not be allowed to strike. There's limits to how they can rotate, I believe, with nurses and police and prison guards, which uh, was largely affected by this one. Didn't they at one point talk about having like minimum staffing levels or something? Yeah, they have to maintain minimum staffing levels, which is reasonable. But uh, uh, if, except that in some locations they're already at that minimum level. That's so they, the thing. They essentially can't change anything they're doing. That's the thing. True. But this really might have been softer rather than saying you just can't interfere. It might have been a little softer if there wasn't such a need to protect the workers from the abuse of employers, which is what he's saying there, um, or the abuse of governments, really. And that if there was reasonable labor laws, we wouldn't need the court to, to come in and, and impose rules like this. So we should rewrite all the labor laws? Yes, we should. <laughs> we personally? Yes. Oh, okay. Wow. <clears throat> It's a big, big responsibility. I don't know if I'm ready for that. It's one of the things I always tell new members when I ask for their $5 affiliation fee. Um, I use that as kind of an example. I say, we don't want your $5. The law says we need to take this $5 from you so that you know you're part of a union and know that you're involved and it's kind of recognition. It's, uh, I believe it's part of the what's called the aspect of consideration in contract law. Uh, that shows that both sides have to benefit from something, and of course both sides are. And I always tell people, or this is part of a labor law that says it's to protect you so you know what's going on, but really the whole point of this law is to, is so that your first interaction with the union is us asking you for money and annoying you. Because mm. 
there's no other reason for it. We don't want that $5. We don't need that $5, but the law says we have to take something from you. And it's really just to give you a, a bad taste right off the start. Yeah, the union's always taking my money. What has the union ever done you know, for me? Yeah, so the... They just give me this piece of paper. <laughs> yeah, so the laws get pretty petty even in that sense. And most laws really need to be looked at because anything that's good for the worker is probably secretly good for the employer. And, you know, when this whole limiting the right to strike came out, it was really in the media as a law to protect the public. And we have to protect the public from strikes. We have to protect the public and the economy. But there was very little on how damaging it was to the unions and how it basically made unionization impossible. It was just, oh, this is here to protect you. This is here for, you know, you know to protect companies so your job is secure because this is for labor. Uh, no, an anti-union law, especially one of that scope, is not for protecting any employee. Do you have any uh, wonderful ideas for how to use your your right to unionization? Uh, we'd love to hear them. So send us an email at overburdenpod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.